This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. As you all know, Master Brewers is a nonprofit organization. You probably also realize that it's expensive to produce shows like the Master Brewers podcast every week. If you're a vendor, please consider sponsoring the Master Brewers podcast. It'll cost you less than you probably spent to sponsor that last district meeting, and your message will reach the thousands of brewers who tune in each week. Click contact from masterbrewerspodcast.com to learn more. And I pulled IPAs and, you know, Imperial IPAs. And of course, you know, I, I see the diastole average for those beers is much higher than, than the rest. So we, we do believe there is that change of um, fermentable sugars getting eaten up by the yeast and causing some secondary fermentation because of dry hopping. This week on the show, we explore the topic of dry hopping's correlation with diacetyl. You'll hear about the work White Labs has done to explore this phenomenon and where you can go to see their data. I'm Kara Taylor. I'm our senior lab manager from White Labs in San Diego. You've been working on getting to the bottom of something that a lot of us brewers have observed over the years but couldn't explain. How did you first get interested in dry hopping's correlation with diacetyl? I had just found that I was drinking a lot of double IPAs and IPAs several years ago and finding that every time I ordered one, it had diacetyl in it, um, which is a compound that I just really despise in beer, even the most <laughs> Me too. minimal amount. I'm very sensitive. <laughs> um, Chris White and I used to get in arguments and he would pretend there was diacetyl in things and I would like try to figure out if it actually had it and it would be the things like coffee or <laughs> he didn't believe me how sensitive I was. Um, but I, so then I started looking at um, some data that we, uh, we do something called big QC day. Um, and that's basically people are allowed to send in their samples for a reduced price. Um, and they tell us the style. And so we can analyze some of that data uh, by style and we were able, you know, to look at diacetyl levels and I pulled IPAs and, you know, imperial IPAs. And of course, you know, I, I see the diacetyl average for those beers is much higher than, than the rest. So I kind of from there wanted to see, you know, what was going on. Kara, I remember when you presented some of the early work on this subject at a district mid-Atlantic meeting, I don't know, five or so years ago. Uh, how about giving us an overview of those original studies and what you found out then? So yeah, when I when I first started doing that project, you know, I was 
fairly young in the industry. I'd probably worked a, you know, three or four years. Um, and so I, you know, I, at first I had this notion of like, you're adding dry hop, you're, you're dry hopping beers and yeast is, you know, falling out of solution, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, we've got all this excess diacetyl and I, you know, I, I quickly did some Imhoff cone experiments and it was like, Oh, clearly that's not happening. We've got a, a lot of nucleation sites happening, a lot of churning. Um, that is definitely not happening. Um, um, you know, so I was basically at that point just sort of testing out some theories. And so at the end of that, I didn't really have a lot of conclusive knowledge. Um, but I knew how important this information was because, um, you know, if you Googled diacetyl and dry hopping, my name was coming up and I think I was getting an email, you know, I told Devin maybe once a week with someone going, do you have anything new? Do you have any more findings? And of course I said, no, I haven't had time. I'm sorry. Um, and then Devin was able to sort of, you know, pick it up from there. Cool. Well, I think it's probably worth a quick refresher on diacetyl metabolism. How about taking a minute to talk about diacetyl's precursor, how and where it's converted, and what diacetyl levels should look like throughout a normal fermentation? Hi, uh, my name is Devin Tani. I'm the analytical lab specialist here at White Labs in uh, San Diego, California. Diacetyl formation is a natural uh, byproduct of uh, fermentation. It's usually created through um, amino acid production. Um, so this is a usual uh, metabolism, right? Metabolites, uh, yeast trying to form um, amino acids to help build healthy yeast, um, sustain life um so um diacetyl its precursor alpha acetolactate is actually also a precursor to some of these amino acids such as like valine um this alpha acetolactate is able to um go outside the cell walls inside inside the beer and just float around um and through a chemical change pH change, temperature change, this alpha acetolactate is able to be converted into diacetyl, and that's when you have a problem. Um, diacetyl usually spikes during that exponential phase with uh, lots of propagation. Um, you also see that rise in acetaldehyde as well. So usually to combat this problem, uh, a lot of breweries do a diacetyl rest or a de-rest, where... Um, the temperature is risen to give more activity for the yeast cells and um, terminal gravity is already reached. So the yeast cells have eaten all the fermentable sugars already. So that way uh, the yeast could go to town on your unwanted off flavors such as diastole. And then they are able to reabsorb um, that diastole and turn it into a flavorless compound known as acetonin. All right. So the real question here is how and why can dry hopping affect this process? Devin, you presented some new work at the 2017 Master Brewers Conference in Atlanta. What approach did you guys take this time around? So that's correct. Um, so the approach we took this time around is um, after Kara's uh, research, uh, we know some uh, missing um, data points. So we want to try to look more at uh, general data points as well as um, real life applications of this dry hopping as well. Your first step was to do some lab scale trials. Tell us about those. Okay, so those lab scale trials, again, were um, mainly to um, replicate 
like uh Karis Childs just on uh, my own scale. Um so those lab skills pretty much uh were just those uh four one liter uh, batches of I I believe a uh, fifteen plate of wart and then we started dry hopping it before it uh reached terminal gravity just to see um a natural process of what happens when you dry hop before hitting terminal gravity. Um, and what we did see was that natural progression of the diastole rise from the lag and exponential phase, as well as the decrease um, during that de-rest. Um, but as you saw, um, I believe if you... Uh, look at uh, my presentation. The some of the diastole at uh, during dry hopping was already over the limit and just uh, went even past that, showing that um, there was already diastole before dry hopping and then also increase. But we do not know if that increase was due to the dry hopping or if it was still part of the active fermentation. You also worked with some San Diego-based breweries that dry hop. Uh, I guess it must have been a real challenge to find some of those. Are, are there any breweries in San Diego that don't dry hop? <laughs> um, Probably not, huh? It, not, not a lot, yeah. Usually, because we are in the lovely uh, Miramar location, so we had our uh, bountiful picking of people that wanted to help out. Great. Are, uh, can you tell me, are dry hopping methods all over the place in San Diego, or are there any common themes? Um, so, that, again, there was a... It was hard to determine that. We had um, nine uh, participants help us out on this uh, project. Um, so, with such a small sample size, it is hard to um, dictate similarities and differences. Yes, I did see... Uh, certain similarities between like dry hop temperatures with a few breweries, but again, um, the processes uh, did seem to differ depending on the scale of the brewery as well as um, how big their fermenters were. Coming up, we do believe there is that change of um, fermentable sugars getting eaten up by the yeast and causing some secondary fermentation because of dry hopping. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Northern California holds its technical conference February 2nd at Sierra Nevada in Chico. The District St. Paul Minneapolis February meeting and scholarship drive is February 8th at Surly Brewing. District St. Louis meets at O'Fallon Brewery on February 15th. The Fundamentals of Cut and Stack Labeling webinar is February 19th. District Rocky Mountain meets at AB in Fort Collins February 22nd. District Philly will be at Trogues February 23rd. District Milwaukee and the Wisconsin Brewers Guild hold a joint technical conference March 1st and 2nd at Badger State Brewing. District Mid-South meets at Mill Creek in Nashville March 2nd and 3rd. District Northern Rockies meets in Bozeman March 2nd. The District Midwest Spring Meeting is at Mad Tree Brewing March 10th. Districts Michigan and St. Louis both meet March 15th. And check out the speaker lineup for the 2018 Eastern Technical Conference March 23rd and 24th in Atlantic City. View the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. 
Now back to the show. Okay, so you grab samples from, I believe, something like 14 brews from nine different breweries. I'm not sure if I got that right, but what did you test for and at what points were these samples taken? Um, so these samples were taken all throughout uh, the ferment, uh, the dry hopping process. So um, this was dictated by when the brewery actually did dry hop. So again, that's why that lab skill was important because most of the breweries I uh, did dry hop after reaching terminal gravity. Um, but this, all the samples were taken all the way from when they first, uh, before they ever dry hop, the sample was taken to get a baseline. And then um, the day of dry hopping, and then every other day until they finally did cold crash that beer. Um, some of the sample points that we did um, take included um, the temperature of the fermenter. Um, we did some micro to make sh- rule out any uh, contamination issues. Uh, we did the cell count of how many yeast cells were in suspension and the viability of the, of those yeast cells, the gravity of that beer, the pH, as well as uh, the, the diacetyl, the precursor, so alpha-acetolactate, and um, the total diacetyl. So that precursor converted into diacetyl as the total diacetyl. And how many of those samples exhibited this increased diacetyl post-dry hopping, post-dry hopping phenomenon? Um, I believe of all the, yeah, I believe it was 14 samples. I believe of those 14, we did see at least three to four exhibit some spike in diacetyl. All right. What else did those uh, samples have in common? Okay, the common similarities between um, those three samples was we did find a minuscule drop in that gravity. Um, it was bigger than any of the, of the other uh, drops in the 14 samples we looked at. Um, this drop in gravity um, was seen through our um, Anton Parr alkalizer, and it was very, very minuscule. Um, but because of that drop in gravity, we saw there was that probable cause of some that drop in fermentable sugars is causing <clears throat> more uh, fermentation to take place. And that was uh, verified also by seeing a rise in that alpha acetolactate. Um, these three samples also did have a bigger rise in precursor after dry hopping. Any other big takeaways there? Um, because I, I guess because there was that small drop in gravity, we wanted to, uh, have a second verification of there was that more, uh, fermentable sugars being eaten up to do that. We actually, um, ran these samples on our HPLC through both our simple sugar method, as well as a carbohydrate method to see if there was any, um, loss of that gravity of sugars being eaten um because uh these samples were already at terminal gravity um the simple sugars actually did not uh 
we're under our detection limit. But when we look at the carbohydrates, which are like the dextrins, the maltotriols, the glycerols, um, we did see a drop of those uh, multiple chain carbohydrates um, dropping down sort of like the uh, gravity. So we, we do believe there is that change of um, fermentable sugars getting eaten up by the yeast and causing some secondary fermentation because of dry hopping. Do you guys have any, have any additional updates since Atlanta? Have you done any, any more work on this at all? Um, yeah, I mean, we haven't, we haven't right now, but since um, Atlanta, we're getting tons of inquiries um, just about the data and about the PowerPoint. So um, I think that it's, you know, it's definitely an important topic. Um, it seems like there's some other people in the industry also kind of uh, trying to to look at it also. So I'm hope hopefully there'll be there'll be some uh, more collaboration and you know more data to present in the future for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, going off of that, like uh, under other people in the industry, uh, like also researching this topic, I believe um, I recently read that in the Brewers Association. And um, one of the grants was to uh, Dr. Thomas Shellhammer. And I believe he's uh, looking more into those um, dextrin-reducing enzymes in hops and trying to correlate uh, which hops have more of this enzyme that is somehow uh, breaking down those unfermentables and the fermentable sugars. Do you guys have any advice for brewers that are that are ex- experiencing issues you know how should they go about adjusting their process to avoid diacetyl that's coming from dry hopping uh one you know i i've definitely see a lot of people that aren't checking before fermentations you know before they're chilling before they're transferring to the bright tank so that's step one is to actually you know do some forced um some forced fermentations um or so you know and and basically check if you have that precursor and then also um you know just making sure that 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 fermentation is dry and that most of the you know those fermentables are are consumed yeah um i uh concur on that just uh anyone could easily do a forced diacetyl test it's uh super easy and efficient you just have to have a water bath make sure you heat up your sample uh to convert any of that precursor make sure all your yeast is off that beer and then all your um once you heat up your sample you all your precursor is going to get converted into diacetyl so you again you're gonna have that total diacetyl and then it's easy to um through a sensory panel determine if your beer has diacetyl or not again like any small brewery is able to do um this forced diacetyl test Sure thing. I've heard of a lot of people that just will put the set the sample on top of their hot liquor tank. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science. That was Kara Taylor and Devin Tani here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you'd like to take a closer look at their data, the 2017 Master Brewers conference proceedings are available from the store menu at mbaa.com. As you all know, Master Brewers is a nonprofit organization. You probably also realize that it's expensive to produce shows like the Master Brewers podcast every week. 
If you're a vendor, please consider sponsoring the Master Brewers podcast. It'll cost you less than you probably spent to sponsor that last district meeting, and your message will reach the thousands of brewers who tune in each week. Click contact from masterbrewerspodcast.com to learn more.